For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You know, one of the most frequent commands given in the scriptures, anybody guess it? Yeah. Don't be afraid. Fear not. We've talked about this several times at Life Church, um, and it's a really important concept. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Um, what's really interesting, guess what one of the other most frequent commands given in scripture is? Fear God. Fear God. Fear the Lord. Um, be God-fearing. I've found that to be confusing at times in my life. Like, okay, we're not supposed to be afraid, but we're supposed to fear God. Um, which one is it? You know, uh, th there's, there's a difficulty there. There's certainly a, a paradox there. And we're going to try to untangle that together today as we look at this idea of the fear of the Lord. Um, last week, we launched into a brand new series called Listening Well. And this series uh, was inspired by the Holy Spirit speaking to all of you. You've been asking the Lord, what would you like to speak to Life Church? What's on your heart for Life Church? What do we need to grow in? And several of you responded that we really think the Lord is speaking to us that we need to grow in the fear of the Lord. So this sermon series is your fault. If you don't like it, uh, that's not on me. Uh, actually, it's on God uh, because He's the one that's been speaking to you. But these are some difficult topics that you all um, passed along. I've got to be honest. These are some really, really challenging words. And the main text that was submitted was from Hebrews chapter 12, which Jack read for you today, along with um, Proverbs 9.10 and some other texts. So we're going to be kind of bouncing around a little bit, but mainly camping out in Hebrews 12 here. And so uh, what I always like to do when we're in a new book is to kind of just explain the, the basic premise of the book. Hebrews as the name suggests, is a book, a letter written to a group of Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians, so, so the book is full of 
um, Old Testament uh, connections, metaphors, pictures. And so if you're not really familiar with the Old Testament, if you're not really familiar with Jewish background, the book of Hebrews is going to be a little bit challenging for you, right? Because it's just chock full of all those things. But what the, the author of Hebrews does is he starts off in the first several book, or chapters of the book saying, look, Jesus is better than all these other things. He's comparing and contrasting the old covenant under the law, which was God said, hey, you obey my laws, I'll be your God. And um, that was given to Moses, of course, at Mount Sinai. And, and so he's comparing that covenant to the covenant of Jesus, in Jesus, the covenant of grace, where we're, we're given grace because of Jesus' blood. And he's saying, look, Jesus is better than all these other things of the old covenant. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is better. He's a better sacrifice than all these other sacrifices that they used to offer. And so then the author winds up in chapters 11 and 12 and 13 and saying, therefore, because Jesus is better, stay faithful to Jesus. That's the book of Hebrews in a nutshell, right? And we pick up, of course, at the end part in verse or in chapter 12. Um, and, and in this particular passage and then throughout some of the other texts that we're going to look at, I want us to notice five things about the fear of the Lord, if you're taking notes. Five things. First of all, we're going to look at the fear paradox because it's throughout the scriptures, but it's also in the background of our text today. We're going to look at the types of fear, why godly fear is important, how God responds to our godly fear, and then lastly, we're going to talk practically. How do we grow in this? Because that doesn't seem perfectly evident to me or obvious to me anyway. So here we go. The fear paradox in the Bible, point number one. As I mentioned in the intro, there seems to be a fear paradox in the Bible, and we're not exactly sure what to do with that, right? Um, it seems like we're, we're not supposed to fear anything, and yet we're supposed to fear the one who's telling us not to fear. It's very, very interesting and challenging and a bit confusing. And it's in our text today, too, because the author starts with this contrast between two mountains, you'll notice. Um, Mount Sinai, which is actually a contrast between the two covenants. Mount Sinai is where the law was given, representing the old covenant. And there's tons and tons of fear and trepidation there, so much so that the people of Israel were like, don't tell, ask God, please don't talk to us anymore. Just have Moses talk to us, right? They were deathly afraid at Mount Sinai, and so they drew away from God in the fear of their own death. And the second mountain that's contrasting that mountain, that first covenant, is the, is the picture of the second covenant, the covenant under Jesus, and this is Mount Zion, or the new Jerusalem that we see. And this is the picture at the end of the Bible in Revelation, where we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and God is there, and Jesus is there, and there's joy here in this mountain, and there's this festival gathering of angels and saints, and in so many ways, this mountain couldn't be any more different than Mount Sinai. Just a totally, totally different picture. Jesus is there as the mediator of the new covenant with his sprinkled blood. That's a better sacrifice even than the pleasing sacrifices of Abel. But after this contrast, you kind of expect the author to say, see, so um, the covenant under Jesus is nothing like the old covenant. The old covenant was full of fear and trepidation, and this covenant is just joy and happiness, right? Well, no, that's not where he goes with it. Actually, the language becomes really ominous after this, this contrasting of the two mountains. The author says, don't refuse him who's speaking to you, meaning Jesus. 
He reminds them about the children of Israel. He says, look, they didn't escape when they repeatedly rebelled against God as he gave them the command from earth. He says, how much more will we not escape when given this command from heaven? He says, Jesus is promising one more shaking, not just a shaking of the earth like happened at Mount Sinai, but he's promising a shaking of heaven and earth. Like nothing is going to remain that can be shaken. That's what it's saying here. And then he wraps it up by saying this. This is kind of the punchline. This is kind of the big piece of the text for us today. Therefore, let us be grateful that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So now we're back at the beginning, basically. Worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Doesn't that sound like Mount Sinai again? I mean, I thought this was the new covenant. I thought this was the place of joy. I thought this was the mountain of joy. I thought we were out from underneath all that fear stuff at Mount Sinai. Apparently not. There's a little bit of a paradox here. And this is not just in this passage, but many, many other places. There's so many other scriptures we could go to that say, hey, don't be afraid. Hey, don't fear. Fear not, for I am with you. And then there's tons of other scriptures that say, but you should fear God. Him you should, just listen. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11 here, the paradox is in both of these scriptures, and it's not just the Old Testament. Some people tell you, oh, no, the fear of God, that's Old Testament stuff. We're in the New Testament now. No, it's in both. It's all the way through scripture. For the Lord, this is Isaiah 8, verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. So don't fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. I'm confused. I thought we weren't supposed to fear. But let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Matthew 10, 28, this is the words of Jesus. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And we should note the Greek word there for fear is exactly the same both kinds of fear. So it seems there's a paradox here. We're not supposed to be afraid. We're not supposed to fear. And yet we are supposed to fear the Lord. And maybe you've found this idea confusing too. Maybe I'm not alone here today. That's all right. Let's keep digging. Because just like in the English language, um, in the Hebrew and in the Greek both, the word for fear has a pretty good semantic range, meaning it can mean several different things. Anywhere from you know, being terrified of something to just reverencing and awe, reverencing someone and respecting them and standing in awe of them, right? Um, it can mean all of those kinds of things. So we're going to look at the types of fear in the Bible here real quickly as we, as we kind of try to parse this. Two types of fear in the Bible, both we see in this passage from Hebrews today. First of all, we see the fear as in being afraid. And this is the situation on Mount Sinai. You know, um, there's blazing fire, the people are trembling with fear. There's smoke, there's lightning, there's thunder. There's the real fear of death because it was terrifying at Mount Sinai. You would not have wanted to be there, and I don't blame them. I once nearly got struck by lightning. I don't know if I've ever told this story before, but um, I was a freshman in college, and me and some of our buddies from college went out swimming at um, Lewis and Clark Lake at Yankton, and it was a bright blue, sunny day, and off in the very distance to the north, there was this little tiny thunderhead that started moving our way. And it just made a tiny little rumble. And I remember specifically saying, oh, come on, you guys, that's no big deal. 
And finally, one of my friends said, hey, I think we should probably get out of the water. And the moment we stepped on shore, the moment I picked up my towel, the biggest bolt of lightning came down and struck. I felt the heat from it. It was that close. And it hit two guys that were in the water swimming next to us and killed both of them. I was stunned. To this very day, I can't go outside during a thunderstorm. I have that much fear and trepidation about it. I don't mess around with it. I love to fish. I don't fish in thunderstorms. The moment I hear that thunder, I'm done. The moment I see a flashlight, I'm done. I'm out of there. And that's what the people at Mount Sinai were doing. They're like, we're out of here. We're not sticking around. They were afraid, as in terrified, scared to die. That's the first kind of fear in the Bible. The second kind is godly fear of the Lord. In verse 28, kind of our our central verse, it says, Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And that word reverence is also translated as godly fear. And this is what Proverbs 9 verse 10 is talking about when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So it means you have such an awe, such a reverence for God that you don't want to offend him. You don't want to do anything to disappoint him. You, you hold him and esteem him that highly. Think of it on a much smaller scale of, you know, maybe your favorite celebrity. Um, if, if there was a person in life that you could meet any person, dead or alive, and, and you could have a conversation with that person, how would you interact in their presence? Would you be kind of casual, like, hey, what's up? Or would you be like, hey, you know, you'd be very careful about your words and, and very mindful of whose presence you're in. What about the God of the universe, right? The one who hung the stars in the sky, billions of galaxies, billions of stars in each. What would you do in the presence of that God? That's getting at this idea of a godly fear, reverence and awe for him. He's not like anyone else. He's magnificent, and so you approach him as such. And so these are the, the two general types of fear that we see in the Bible, but to help us to, to clarify even more, there's actually two types of fear of the Lord. And so let's look at that for a second here. We see, again, both in this passage. And one commentator I found especially helpful on this point, he categorized them into two people that we see in the Bible, Adam and Moses. So Adamic fear and Mosaic fear. We're going to look at both of those. First of all, um, Adam's fear. This is the type of fear of God that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden when they had sinned. Remember what Adam said in Genesis 3.10? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He's really got fear of the Lord, but this, this type of fear is not what we're looking for, right? This type of fear is as old as humanity itself, and it deals with the fear of being punished for our sin and not wanting to take responsibility for it. Remember Adam and Eve both shirking responsibility? Like, hey, I, I didn't do that. That was the, the woman you put with me. Hey, I didn't do it. That wasn't my fault. That was a snake, right? So it's this fear of God, fear of punishment for our sin, being exposed in our sin, and it's a refusal to take responsibility for it. Adamic fear of God is actually unhelpful for Christians because it's a symptom that directs us away, pushes us away from the cure for our disease, at the very place that we need to go to get a cure for our sin, we refuse to go there. It pushes us away from God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says this. It addresses this kind of fear. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
So see, friends, Christians need not fear God in this way that we fear punishment for our sin, because why? Well, God in Christ has taken the punishment for our sin, right? And God, being a perfectly just God, he's never going to punish the same sin twice. So if Jesus took the punishment for our sin, he would be unjust, actually, in punishing us as well for it. So you can rely on the justice of God and his perfect justice that you will not be punished for your sin if you've trusted it to Jesus. So this kind of fear is unnecessary for us. It's unhelpful. It's of no use to us anymore. And I think it's important to note that the most significant feature of Adamic fear of God is running away from God, right? That's how you know you're, you're afraid of God in the wrong way. You have a, an ungodly fear of God. Is it, it pushes you away from God. You run away from God, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. But then look, it's also what happened with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And one can't blame them for being afraid in the presence of Yahweh, but instead of drawing close to God in that and saying, wow, we have an opportunity to be close to our magnificent God, they, they cowered in fear and they said, we don't want anything to do with him, which is actually a really heartbreaking story. Like, they, they didn't want him to speak to them. They were like, please, Moses, tell God not to speak to us anymore. We only want him to speak to us through you. We don't want to hear his voice anymore. We don't want to be close to him. It's a heartbreaking story. And that kind of fear of God is, of course, in deep contrast to the second kind of fear, Mosaic fear. This is also what we see in this passage with Moses. You know, Moses, as our passage tells us, trembled in the presence of God too. It was impossible not to tremble. You know, you've ever been in a crazy lightning storm or you ever been next to the Niagara Falls or you ever heard a, a fighter jet take off? You tremble, right? Those things are like one one billionth compared to being in the presence of God. It is impossible not to tremble. We see that over and over throughout Scripture. Moses was terrified too, but what did Moses do in the midst of the terrifying presence of the Lord? He drew near. He pushed through that fear. He climbed up the mountain, which can you imagine how scary that would be, especially if you almost got struck by lightning before? And there's all this lightning and storm and everything. And Moses is like, well, what could I do here? I think I'll go get to the highest place I can possibly get to. I would be like, man, I am not wanting to climb up on the top of a mountain in the middle of this. But he did it. He knew all that stuff was the presence of God. And he wanted so badly to be close to him that he pushed through the fear, the inevitable fear of being in the presence of Yahweh to be close to him. I love... um, Exodus chapter 33, 11. It's one of my favorite scriptures of all times. It feels like such an invitation to us. But speaking of Moses, it says this, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Isn't that powerful? Moses had the proper fear of the Lord. He trembled in his presence too, but he didn't let that stop him from wanting to be close to him. He had the right fear of God. He said, I want to be close. I want that more than anything Else, So he pushed through the fear to be near him. Now, remember, what was Moses going up on Mount Sinai to do? What was he going to do up there? Anybody? Ten Commandments, right? He was getting the law. He was coming back down with the law. So we can see that Mosaic fear is a healthy orientation to God that draws us deeper into relationship to him And it helps us to take his commands seriously. 
It helps us to want to obey him and his commands. And this is why the wise king can write in Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. How about that? That might not be the thing that you thought the Bible would say leads to life, but the fear of the Lord, it leads to life. Which brings us to our third point, the importance of godly fear. Now, there are lots of things that we could talk about why godly fear, good, healthy fear of the Lord is important. But there are three things that really jumped out to me in my study this week that I I wanted to pass on to you. This is not an exhaustive list. But the first reason godly fear is important is it leads us to obedience. It leads us to obedience. You know, um, it it, it can't be overstated that you have a healthy fear of the Lord. It's going to help prevent you from sin. It's like guardrails, right? It's going to help prevent you from sin and lead you on the path to obedience. Listen to what Moses said to the Israelites at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, 20, the exact story that we're looking at in Hebrews from the Old Testament. Moses said to the people, they're really terrified, and he says, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. So there's that paradox again. Don't fear. He wants you to fear that you might not sin. It's going to help keep you from sin. And this is a really big theme in this passage. Like he's saying, listen to Jesus. Don't refuse the one who's speaking to you from heaven. Obedience to his commands produces life and flourishing, while disobedience to his commands produces death and destruction in our lives. So it is not a stretch to say the fear of the Lord might be the healthiest thing that a person can possess, the best thing for you spiritually and physically. It's similar to the fifth commandment. You know, the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother, this is the, the first commandment with a promise, God says. Um, and if we had our kids in here, we'd say, why is that, why, why, does, why does God give a promise there with that commandment? Because he says, honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Why is that? Well, it's because they know what's best for you. And you by yourself are probably going to destroy yourself, Right? So it is good for you to fear your parents, to honor them, to obey them, because they know what's best for you. And the same thing is true with the fear of the Lord. You fear the Lord, he's going to give you what's best for you. It's going to go well with you. It's going to always, always lead to life. So that's the first thing. The the first reason the fear of the Lord is important for us is it leads us to obedience. But secondly, godly fear is important because it means we're truly facing God. Truly pursuing him. And this, again, is what Moses did on Mount Sinai, even though it must have been terrifying. I can't imagine him in that spot. And I like how Dr. Doug uh, Koskela puts this. He says, when finite creatures get a glimpse of the holiness of the infinite God, a response of fear is not only proper, it is inevitable. And that is just the point. To fear God in this sense means that we are truly facing God. The fear of the Lord is life-giving because it is the condition of those who are truly looking toward him. We might come at this point from the other direction by recognizing that the only way to avoid a holy awe of God is to turn our gaze away from him. In this respect, fear of the Lord is not so much a feeling that we are asked to muster up. Rather, it is a consequence of truly turning toward God. We obey the command to fear the Lord by turning toward him, not by trying to manipulate our emotions. Thus, the biblical direction to fear the Lord is really a summons to move toward God. I love that because, you know, 
we can't sit here and try to manipulate our emotions into like, oh, now I think I'm fearing the Lord. No, it's just a call to move towards God, to turn towards him. And don't worry, you will sometimes, I mean, here's where this gets really tricky, right? To fear God in the way Moses did means you're going to continually be putting yourself in the presence of the Lord where sometimes you're going to be terrified. It's just the way it is, right? In the presence of Almighty God, sometimes you're going to be scared out of your wits just because of how powerful, how awesome, how magnificent he is. And so if you're experiencing that, sometimes that means you're actually encountering him. You're actually producing him. Now, how do I know that you're going to be scared sometimes? Every single person who encountered God in the Bible had that same experience. I mean, what happens to people when they encounter God in the Bible? They tremble in fear. They fall face down like they're dead. They get, they get incredibly uh, gripped with the sense of their own brokenness and sinfulness, right? That's what happens to everybody. They're terrified. That's why, you know, God always has to be saying, don't be afraid, fear not, because he hadn't come to punish them. But every time he brings his presence, that's what happens. And that's, when it, that's what's going to happen to all of us as we pursue God as well. So I'm not saying that it's right and, and necessarily good to feel scared of God, the first type of fear, but I'm saying it's inevitable. Like, if you experience the presence of the Lord, you're at times going to feel afraid. So that's what um, this commentator was saying. Is like, well, oh, this is a natural consequence. It's a natural byproduct of being in his presence. He's that powerful and that intimidating. John Bevere in his book, The Awe of God, which, by the way, is a great kind of study on this topic, and, and it's like a daily devotional, too. Um, he, he writes about a time that he was speaking at a conference in Brazil, and the Lord manifested his presence in a powerful wind. And the whole audience was really struck by fear, but so was he. And this is how he recalls it. He says, in the awesome presence of God, while the wind blew, I was paralyzed with holy fear. The thought that literally pulsated through my mind was, John Bevere, you make one wrong move, you say one wrong word, and you are a dead man. And have you ever experienced that before? Like, and John loves Jesus. I've listened to this man, right? Like, I, I know he loves Jesus. He's close to God. And yet, he get, you get into the presence of God, and every single one of us is like, oh boy, I can't handle this. You know, I had, I had something on a very much smaller scale happen a few months ago as I was just praying before bed. I felt like the presence of the Lord came near in a different way, and I was just like, I didn't want to move. I was so aware of his power to just take my life at any moment. I was just like, man, he is so big, and I am so small and so weak and so frail and so sinful that I just, I just can't do anything. And that's what we find throughout the scriptures as well. And so here's what I'm confident of. If we suddenly saw all the glory of God right now, we'd all be clawing to get under the concrete. We'd be that terrified. Like his glory would burn our eyes out like the power of 10,000 suns. That's what would be the reality. That's what everybody in the scriptures experienced. So if you find you have a growing fear of the Lord, that's good. That's just an indicator that you're actually pursuing him, that you're actually experiencing him and encountering him. You're experiencing bits of his wonder and magnificence. And the fear of the Lord is important because it gives us that indication. It's an inevitable byproduct of encountering God. 
So that's the second reason the fear of the Lord is important. Thirdly, godly fear is important because it means we're facing who we are. So it's important because it means we're actually facing who God is. We're not making up a God in our own imagination, but it, it means we're facing who we are. Any encounter with God will most likely dinner, uh, generate a deep sense of unworthiness. Have you ever recognized this? Like, oh man, I, I have no business being in the presence of God. Like that, that is what's true. Facing a God who is light and truth results in an accounting for who we are. And this is what the Israelites did not want to do at Mount Sinai. They were like, in, in the presence of this almighty God, our sinfulness is exposed and we don't want that. And so they turned away from the light rather than towards it. Rowan Williams describes this experience of judgment in the light of truth in his book, Tokens of Trust. He says, the identities we have made that we've pulled around ourselves like a comfortable dressing gown or a smart suit will dissolve. And what is deepest in us, what we most want, what we most care about will be laid bare. We are right to feel apprehensive about that. And we are wrong to brush away the sense of proper fear before God's judgment. However much we dislike the extravagant or hysterical expressions of it that have characterized some ages of Christianity. So yeah, um, Williams is right. Like, we can't just brush that away, even though some generations have gone overboard with this kind of concept of God's fear and judgment, and, and that's all they've made God out to be. But we don't want to brush that away. In his presence, we're going to be exposed. We're going to be laid bare. There's going to be an uncovering of all of our ugliness. And yet for the Christian, that isn't actually bad news. That isn't actually to shame us and to, to pound us into the dirt. It's actually to magnify the glory and the beauty of his grace for us, right? That we're that broken, we're that sinful, and yet that magnifies only um, on a larger scale what Christ has done for us, how he's offered himself for us. And that brings us to the fourth point. God's response to our godly fear. Like, what does God do when we're in this spot of like, oh, woe is me. I'm so, I'm so unclean. I'm so filthy. And you're so mighty and so powerful. Does God say, yeah, that's right. And then he kind of kicks us while we're down? No. It's not how God handles it. In the call story of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, we see a perfect picture of godly fear and how God responds to it. You know, the chapter begins with Isaiah's vision. And he gets this picture of God in, on the throne and Isaiah is immediately, just like we would expect, he's on his face before God. Woe is me. He says, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs, one of the angels attending, he doesn't say, yeah, you're right, you're pretty unclean, let's get you out of here. He, he says, oh, I'll handle this. And he goes over to the altar, takes a live burning coal, takes it and touches it to his lips, and then he says, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. And then, of course, Isaiah is prepared to receive the Lord's calling. And brothers and sisters, do you know this is how God responds to your holy fear? You know, most often God will come to you in that spot of holy fear and he'll say, don't be afraid. Fear not, because I haven't come to pound you into the ground. I've come to rescue you. I've come to save you. I've come to love you. But then he says, look, I know you're sinful, and you know you're sinful. I've come to handle that problem, too. You see what I'm saying? Jesus is that live coal. His life was offered on the altar of God. His blood was spilt there. 
shed for us so that when his life touches your life, it takes away your sin. And then you're called. You're called like Isaiah to go on mission with the Lord wherever he sends you. That's what God does with our godly fear. Jesus is, as our text says, the mediator of this new covenant. He's our go-between with the Father. He's the one whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's the better sacrifice. It's completely paid for all of your sins. That's how God responds to our godly fear. He doesn't doesn't encourage our groveling. He lifts us up. He says, no, don't fear. I got this. I'm taking care of this. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, the Holy Spirit is nudging you, saying you should have fear of judgment. The Holy Spirit's right. We would encourage you, just like the author of Hebrews, to listen. Don't refuse him who's speaking to you. Respond to it. Because if if you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God without the blood of Jesus covering your sins, you should be terrified. You will be terrified. Judgment is coming. But the good news is you don't have to take the judgment for your sin. You don't have to take the punishment for it. Jesus took it for you in his death and resurrection on the cross. So we would invite you today to come to that place. You need not fear God in that sense that you're afraid of punishment. Jesus will take the punishment for your sin. He has taken it. He offers it to you today. There's going to be people up here to pray with you in a moment. But for the rest of us, you know, I've been asking myself this week, this idea is so prominent throughout Scripture, and we don't talk about it that much, and it's hard to wrap our minds around it. But how do we grow in the fear of the Lord? You know? Um, it's not just this feeling that you manufacture. And obviously, we cannot produce these, these different kinds of experiences that we find in the Scriptures, right? We can't produce things like um, Isaiah went through. We can't produce experiences like the Apostle Paul had on the Damascus Road. We can't have Mount Sinai moments like Moses had just at the snap of our fingers. And those experiences obviously build a healthy, holy fear of God in us. So how do you do that if you've never encountered God in that way? How do you go about building the fear of the Lord in your heart? Well, there's a couple things that I'd like to give to us as we close, and then I'm going to have Jack come and pray over us. First of all, read the Word. I know we sound like a, a broken record here, but this is one of the easiest ways to encounter God. It's through his own self-revelation to us. We read his word. In his word, you will find that you start to begin to fear him in a different way. You start to have a holy reverence and awe for who he is and what he's done for you. Like we said last week, we don't just want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. We want to meditate on it, digest it, wrestle with it. Let the word sit on you in those times. Let the word produce godly fear in you. Secondly, I would encourage you to go outside more. This might seem a little bit odd, but as you read the Psalms, the psalmist is constantly inspired to the the fear of the Lord by just looking around at creation. You know, Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? That's a fear of the Lord kind of psalm. It's a fear of the Lord kind of prayer. Um, Livy and I have been taking walks at night looking at the constellations, and we're kind of budding astronomers we actually messed up on the Big Dipper, though, the other night, so that wasn't very cool. But, but, you know, just looking at the stars and imagining, wow, we're on this tiny little blue dot, and there's billions of galaxies, billions of stars. Like, that starts to increase your fear of the Lord. Like, how big are you? 
It's amazing. Get outside more. Consider the creation. Thirdly, listen to the testimonies of others and share your testimony with others. You know, you all have testimonies of times of encounter with the Lord, and, and sometimes they're very few and far between. But when we hear them, we're all a bit more encouraged to fear the Lord. You know, when I hear Jack's testimony of May 19, it encourages me to fear the Lord. He's active in our lives. He's present. He's powerful. Um, when I hear all of you talk, I'm like, yeah, all right, that's right. I might not be encountering, encountering God in those same ways at that moment in my life, but your testimony fuels me and my fear of the Lord. And then finally, fourthly, pray for it. You know, years ago, I was introduced to this prayer, um, this daily prayer for myself by Mike Bickle. And he said, you know, a lot of Christians feel like it's selfish to pray a lot of prayers for themselves. We feel like we should always be praying for other things in the world and other people. But he says, you know, the scriptures really encourage us to pray for ourselves, to pray for our inner being. And so he has this acronym he prays for himself called, and the word is fellowship. Guess what the F stands for? Fear the Lord. Proverbs 9.10, Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Michael, just pray, Lord, help me to have a healthy sense of awe and reverence for you that, that keeps me from compromise. I want to fear you. I want to rightly behold you. I want to encounter you in such a way that, that it, it holds me from, from sin, that it keeps me on the right path. Because here's the thing, friends. You can be a Christian. I think you can love God deeply and lose the fear of the Lord and get you into a lot of trouble. I mean, look at King David, one of the slack times of his life, right? He's out in the palace just kind of kicking back in his Jordans and his backwards hat on, and he's looking over, and he finds a naked woman. And then all of a sudden, that leads to him sleeping with her. He gets her pregnant. Now he's killed her husband. I think David loved the Lord. You read the Psalms, and you're like, this man loved the Lord. But I think you can slip out of the fear of the Lord, and that can lead you into a lot of trouble. So we want to just end by praying for it. We just want to end by praying for it, just asking the Lord. We can't grow ourselves in this, so would you grow us in the fear of the Lord? So I'm going to ask Jack to come, and he's just going to pray over Life Church um, that we would be a people that would fear the Lord and grow in a godly, healthy fear like Moses had. Father, I thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit. Because when we speak about the fear of the Lord and fearing you, and I think of you, Jesus, calling us your friend. And it's hard to put those things together. And this is one of those things where we cannot intellectually create the fear of you in our hearts. But we need the power of your Holy Spirit to bypass our intellect and go straight at our hearts to get it there. For some of us, the fear of the Lord, the idea of it just does nothing but touch our intellect and it goes straight over our hearts, over our heads. Others of us are, in some sense, we're like terrified, scared of you. And we don't want to come to you with the, the struggles and difficulties of our own life, almost thinking that you don't care, but that's not true. 
So either one of these just misrepresented it all. So I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come to us? Would you come to us this very day and tomorrow and the rest of this week? Would you remind us constantly of this word, of this message, and speak to us what it means to really fear you and to stand in awe of you? the very one who spoke into existence everything that is. There was nothing but you, and you just spoke it, and it became true. Would you remind us constantly of who you really are, how much you love us, but help us also to realize that you can come to us with a very severe warning just like you did to me on May 19th. To disobey you costs too much. So I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, get into our hearts and get into our lives what it means to be your friend and what it means that you call us friends and what it means to stand in awe and in fear of you. And the wonder of that relationship when that thing is balanced out right it is an unbelievable relationship. It is an incredible relationship that brings life and brings freedom and brings power over sin and power to live right and to love you more than anything else in this world. Would you do that to us? Would you help us, Jesus? Because we need your help. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.